Good evening. We're in John chapter 14 this evening, if you turn in your Bibles there to that place. And uh, we have a radio station that is joining us tonight. I love Saturday nights because we're able to share it with so many people around the United States. And whenever I travel, I have people say, I listen to your Saturday night broadcast live in their area. And we have another station to add to the network, uh, the CSN network. It's in Ripe Town. What? What? No, Nevada. Out by Eli, Nevada on 91.3. Let's welcome everyone who's listening tonight. This is the information age, they say. Knowledge is power, they tell us. And they quote statistics like 3,000 new pages of information are put out every 60 seconds at this point. The renowned scientist Isaac Asimov said, at the rate at which knowledge is growing by to the time today's child reaches age 50, 97% of everything known in the world at that time will have been learned since his birth. It's an incredible thing to think about. The rate at which knowledge is growing on earth. The ultimate knowledge is the knowledge of God. What could be loftier than that? What could be more important than that? And though we live in an advanced age where we are technologically smart, I fear we are theologically dumb when it comes to the things of God. Mary Farwell lives in Missouri, and she has a son named Matthew. He was five years old at the time she tells this story. The five-year-old had his little computer out, speak and spell computer, where he types in words and the computer says them back to him. He typed in the word God and the computer said word not found. He typed it in again. He was a little angry. Word not found, said the computer. He was just really livid, this little five-year-old. And he looked at the computer as if he was talking to a person and rebuked it saying, Jesus is not going to like this. (laughs) You know that news magazines every so often put out God-speak stuff, things on God. It's sort of every few months, oh yeah, pull out the God article, let's run it this week. Uh, A few months ago, Newsweek put out this one, God and the Brain. God and the Brain. How we perceive God. And so uh, the article begins by saying, in the, in the new field of neurotheology, which is inter- it interested me, in neurotheology, scientists seek the biological basis of spirituality. Is God all in our heads? The article proposes that spirituality is linked somehow to the temporal lobes, especially the left lower temporal lobe. We process God's stuff there, metaphysical stuff. Uh, Some see uh, either a a form of epilepsy that occurs in the temporal lobe or an actual uh, electrical charge that stimulates thoughts. 
The article did interest me, and one portion in particular about this temporal lobe stuff was from Michael Persinger, a professor in Canada. He suspects that religious experiences are evoked by many electrical storms in the temporal lobes, triggered by anxiety, personal crisis, lack of oxygen, low blood sugar, and simple fatigue, suggesting a reason that some people find God in such moments is because of their anxiety or their, their burdens. Why the temporal lobe? Persinger speculates that our left temporal lobe maintains our sense of self when that region is stimulated by the right, uh, is stimulated, but the right one stays quiescent, quiet. The left then interprets this as a sensed presence, as the self departing the body or as God. That's their explanation of your ideas of knowing God. Now, of course, God uses our brains. He involves our uh, temporal lobes. He engages our minds. We are made in His image. We are made with a thirst after God. And certainly, He uses what He has created that we might perceive Him. But, but there's more. Because the knowledge of God is, is not like the knowledge of any other subject, principally because it's more than a subject. He is a personality. And to know a personality is different than just knowing a subject. And even the, the study of theology, which means studying God, cannot exhaust the subject. You can take somebody with a master's degree uh, in divinity or a Ph.D. in theology, and you may find among that ilk, they may not even know God very much at all with all of that knowledge stuffed in their brains. It's more than that. It's, God is inexhaustible because He is by His very nature transcendent above His creation. There are two books that stood out in my mind this week as I was going over the text we're going to read tonight about knowing God. One is called Knowing God. It was a 1973 Christian bestseller written by J.I. Packer. The book moved me and changed me. I love it to this day. Another book I love equally as much, if not more, was called Knowing the Face of God by Tim Stafford. I'm going to read a little portion, a paragraph out of that tonight. Uh, another book uh, worth mentioning, there are several, but this one is called The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. Excellent devotional literature. These books try to deal with the immensity of the subject of God, knowing God. I say immensity because you never arrive. You never have a down. You never go, oh, I get it all now. You can't. Uh, there was a, a girl named Hannah, sweet little gal, sort of. Spent the night with her grandparents. And uh, before she was being tucked into bed, she said, uh, are we going to church tomorrow? Grandmother said, yes, we are, Hannah. And she turned up her nose and she said, I, I hate Sunday school. And uh, the grandmother said very calmly, well, Hannah, we need to learn everything we can about God. And Hannah said, I learned all about God when I used to live in Illinois. 
And grandmother said, well, Hannah, I've been going to church all my life and I still don't understand everything there is to know about God. And Hannah said very smugly, well, maybe you weren't paying attention. (laughs) Which leads us to ask with the disciples, how much were they paying attention? In fact, how much am I paying attention when it comes to the things of God? Because so often I forget even some of the basics. Tonight, in verse 7, our paragraph begins... And after the first line by Jesus, Philip, one of the disciples, speaks. Now, remember, this is the last night they're going to be together. Philip is the third one who speaks up. This is like honesty night. They know Jesus is leaving. Peter pipes up. Thomas speaks up. And now Philip. Let's look at it. If you had known me, Jesus is saying you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know Him and have seen Him. Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. You have an outline. I've divided it into two simple things, roadblocks and resources. There are roadblocks to knowing God. There are many of them. We're only going to cover a couple tonight because that's what our text deals with. And then there are resources. How can I know this God who is so transcendent? How can we do it? First of all, the roadblocks. Verse 7 brings one out. It uh, it is that the disciples were just uh, unable to comprehend Jesus. They were inaccurate in who He was. For Jesus says, If... You had known me, you would have known my Father also. Jesus uses the word know four times in two verses. So that becomes a central theme. By the way, John, the author of this book, uses the term know 141 times in the book. But he uses it four different ways, and it will help you to know those ways. One of the ways John uses the word to know is simply to know a fact. A second way that he uses it is to know or to understand the truth behind the fact. In in other words, to perceive something. Third, he uses it in reference to knowing a person. And fourth, he uses it, as he does here, in terms of deeply understanding and being in unity with another person. A deeper kind of relationship. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. He's not referring to them being acquainted with him. Nobody on earth knew Jesus better than those disciples in terms of acquaintance. What he's speaking of here is they didn't completely, fully understand his identity. They will. It's coming. Jesus predicts that. But they hadn't yet. They had been with him three and a half years. Their lives were changed. They left everything, family, occupation to follow Jesus. They were the best years of their life. 
However, this whole concept of God was still being computed by the brain, their brain, their temporal lobe or whatever. They're still trying to figure it all out. They don't quite get it. Jesus came to reveal the Father. Uh, John writes in John chapter 1, verse 18, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, or literally, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father or at the Father's side has revealed Him or shown Him forth to the world. What is John saying? Nobody has seen God in His full effulgence of His glory, His full essence. Jesus came to reveal the Father. There was a kindergarten teacher who told their, uh, the class to draw anything that was important to them. It was a free day of art. So they were drawing their pictures and she was going through the classroom and uh, she noticed one of the little girls drawing something head down, very intense. What are you drawing? She asked. The little girl said, I am drawing a picture of God. And the teacher sort of stiffened up and said, well, nobody knows what God looks like. It was a Sunday school class. She was guarding that truth. The little girl didn't bat an eyelash. She said, they will in a minute. (laughs) Up to this point in history, people didn't know what God was like in representation. But Paul said, Jesus is the icon. That's the Greek word. The exact representation, the portrait of God to reveal God, His nature and His character. Part of our problem in knowing God is our own baggage, our own perception. It's the baggage we bring into the relationship with God just like we bring into every other relationship. Our spiritual upbringing is part of that baggage. What you've been taught about God, your values, your culture, your customs, all of that forms a lens by which you view God. And that lens has to be corrected as you grow in grace and in knowledge of Jesus Christ. The disciples had the same problem. Do you think that night in the upper room that the disciples had a Trinitarian concept of the Godhead? This triunity of three in one God? Uh Uh-uh. They are still thinking that the Messiah who comes is going to be a guy who just brings in the kingdom immediately. That's why they were bickering that night about who would be the greatest. Even though Jesus had spoken many times about this before, in John 5 and John 8, He claimed to be equal with the Father. In John 8 and 10, His enemies understood He claimed to be God. At the Jordan River, they saw it demonstrated dramatically as the Father spoke, the Holy Spirit came upon the Son, and God said, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But it it just didn't compute. And be honest, it's still hard to compute. And so we have often an inability to grasp or comprehend God. How much do you really know the Lord? How much do you know of His plan? How much do you know of His purpose? How much do you know of His person? As revealed in the Scripture, Charles Spurgeon said once, I believe a very large majority of churchgoers are merely unthinking, slumbering worshipers of an unknown God. Tough words to hear, but often true. Look at verse 8. 
there's another roadblock to knowing God. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Not only were they unable to comprehend the identity of Christ, they now, he admits, part of the difficulty is in apprehending God. They want to see Him. It's hard to get your mind around a concept. You know, Philip was a pragmatist, right? We know that from other scriptures. When uh, Jesus was feeding the multitude and they were gathered around him, Jesus poses the question to Philip. Where are we going to get food to feed all these people? Now, Jesus knew, but it's like a, a trick test question. Philip, what are we going to do? Well, he's, he's left-brained. Uh, he doesn't deal with spiritual truth, abstract truth. He thinks left-brained. He's a planner. And so he computes how many people are there on the grass, wives, children. He goes, man, uh, a 200 denarii worth of uh, uh, money isn't enough to provide food for, for, for all of them. In other words, I figured it out, Jesus. We need just a little over eight months' wage for a working man. We can, we can, we can do this. Wrong answer. How are we going to feed him? Well, you're here. That's the right answer. Jesus can do it. Now, look at his question. Lord, show us the Father. You and I could have said that. That's the heart cry of every single believer. We want more of God than we've experienced right now. It's this longing for God that forms our basis of worship. Though there is plenty of evidence for God's existence, though there is overwhelming support for the fact of God, we want a lot more than that. Our heart cry could be summed up by Moses, who was having a direct conversation with God one day. And Moses said, God, show me your glory. In other words, I want to see your face. God said, no man can see my face and live. Now think about that. Here's Moses. Here's a guy who has had more supernatural experiences in his life than all of our experiences put together. He had watched the plagues come on Egypt. He had watched a sea open up and dry land appear before him. He saw a cloud lead them by day and a pillar of fire by night. He heard the audible voice of God. He's still not satisfied. I want to see your glory. I want more of you than I have. Here's my point. No matter how sophisticated we are or spiritually well-informed we are, down deep at our core, we want to see God. We want to really experience God. We have a problem with invisible God. I mean, we talk to Him, but it's not like we can see Him with his body language going, yeah, okay, yeah, or answering us immediately. Remember H.G. Wells' famous story, The Invisible Man? It was was an interesting concept. And yet, though it sounds cool, I'd like to be invisible. You become annoying after a while as an invisible person. It can do things to your mind. It can turn on you, that whole concept of being invisible. I was one time on the telephone to a friend of mine. I was talking, and I went on and on. I was talking, filling him in, not knowing that we had been cut off for some time. (laughs) And I really wasn't in the mood to call him back and regurgitate all the conversation. 
When I discovered that I'd been talking to air, I felt awfully embarrassed. And sometimes we do feel that way. You know, I'm having a conversation, I'm at least a dialogue with God. We can relate to Isaiah who said to God, Truly you are a God who hides yourself. This is also the heart cry of Job. I want to find God. I go to the right, I go to the left, I can't find Him. Now the Apostle Peter did say, You love Him even though you don't see Him. You trust Him even though He's invisible. But admit it, it's hard to love and to trust someone you do not see, somebody who is invisible. Tim Stafford wrote that book I told you about, Knowing the Face of God. He is more honest than most authors. He says in one section, I had a deep enjoyment of Christian brothers and sisters, and I could not help longing for the same awakening with God Himself. I could spend happy hours with them, but 15 minutes with God took an effort. I felt it must be my fault I was supposed to hear God's voice in a 2,000-year-old book. I was supposed to talk with God in prayer. But when I read the Bible, I heard no voices. My prayers often seemed like I was talking to myself. And so one inky, blustery night, when the wind blew up the arms of the trees high into the air, I walked for miles, asking God again and again to simply show Himself to me. I shouted to heaven to shatter the silence. I did not want to work up a feeling of God. I wanted God to break in on me. He did not. He goes on to say, I went home that night, I went to bed, and I grew. And the rest of the book talks about how he grew to know and grew to love this invisible God. But this whole longing for God that Philip expresses drives us to worship Him. And sometimes our worship experiences are better than others. Sometimes our worship, frankly, is is palpable. It's tangible. It's like, I, I feel like God is with me. But I propose to you that all of the worship experiences that you've had on earth put together will not really satisfy you. You know why? They're not meant to satisfy you. They're meant to create a deeper thirst in you for ultimate intimacy face-to-face with God in eternity. All of the worship that we have, when it's so good, is simply meant to whet the appetite. And so you go, I can't wait to see His face in heaven. I'll give you an example, an illustration of this. When I travel to a foreign country, I take photographs often of my family, my wife and my son. I look at them. Never once have I been in a foreign country and looked at the picture saying, that's all I need. I don't need to go home. I'm content to live right here and just look at their pictures forever. No, looking at their picture reminds me of them, but it only accentuates the loss. I want to see them again. I may pick up the phone and talk to them, but that didn't completely satisfy me. It only accentuates the loss. I want to be there face to face. I have pictures of their faces. I don't have pictures of their feet or their hands, their faces. Because I want that intimacy of relationship of seeing the face. That's why David wrote in Psalm 16, I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness, in glory. 
So this longing of Philip, this, this desire to see, to apprehend God, it drives us to worship. This longing also is the basis not only of worship but of idolatry. Because we can think this way. I can't see God. He is invisible. I wish I could see God. I wish He were visible. I wish I could bring Him down to my level. And at my level, I could understand Him. And so we create images. We build statues. We paint pictures. And we we use that picture and say, Ah, that's God. Or we go for a, a physical, tangible experience and we say, you need this experience to know God. And if you hadn't had this experience like I've had, you're really not saved like I am. Because we want something tangible. Again, remember, God by His very nature is transcendent. He can't be confined to a picture or even an earthly concept. And so we try to lower God, make Him like us. You've heard it. People basically will say to you, well, that's your idea of God. I picture God as this nice grandfather in the clouds looking down at everybody, and everybody is sincere, and he accepts. That's my picture of God. That's idolatry because it's not based upon what God revealed about himself. Now, I've met people who actually thought they saw God. I knew a guy on drugs. He claimed... Every time he was on that drug that he saw God, I saw God, man. (laughs) Oh, really? Or people have apparitions of God. They're all over the world. For the life of me, though, why would Jesus appear in a tortilla? I never quite understood (laughs) that. We long for something we can touch, smell, taste. Those are the roadblocks. Let's look at the resources. Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The first step in knowing God is faith. It's to believe in Him. Now, the disciples were already believers. But Jesus says, believe in me. But he uses a tense called the present active indicative. It speaks of continued action. Go on believing in me. Now that tells a different story. It tells me that we need to let our faith grow. You know, say, well, I I came to faith in Christ years ago. I made a commitment to him. Is your faith growing? Are you becoming stagnant in your faith or in the exercise of your faith? There was once a doctor, sort of an unbelieving doctor. He acknowledged God and he was speaking to a Christian patient. And uh, the doctor said, "Um, you just got to help me understand faith here. I believe in God and I guess I believe in Jesus. And, uh, And yet I feel like something is missing in my life. I'm not conscious I have any doubts, but I don't think I'm saved. I don't have any real awareness of God, so what's my problem? The Christian patient said, Doctor, it's like this. A week ago, I believe that you are a great physician, that if anything would happen to me, that you'd be the guy to do whatever needed to be done. But two days ago, Doctor, I let you cut me open, and I let you give me medicine that I don't understand exactly what it does. 
I surrendered my whole life under your care. That's the difference, doctor. It was not belief, it was not faith that the doctor could help him. It's that the doctor would help him at that moment that healed him. It was a surrender. So how is your faith? Is it growing? Are you surrendering? Do you find yourself becoming a little stagnant? A little professional? I meet professional Christians. They kind of look down on those who are real young and excited about Jesus. Oh yeah, they'll grow. They'll become stale like me. (laughs) The first step in knowing God is to believe, to surrender, and to go on believing. That's how we, we know Him. Second is to be in His presence. Look at what Jesus says to Philip. Have I been with you so long, three and a half years, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? And then again in verse 7, Jesus says, And from now on you know him and have seen him. You know, it is possible to be around someone for a long time and not really know who they are. I speak to couples who tell me this all the time. I've been married to him for so many years. I feel like I don't even know him. My son was at a World Series game with his mom and myself a few years ago when the Yankees played for the, against the Braves in Atlanta. John Wetland got us tickets there. He was pitching for the Yankees at the time. And Nathan got to sit on the team bus after one of the World Series games when, the, when the, the Yankees won in brave territory. It was a great night. And Nathan was all pumped, and he sits next to a guy on the bus. Didn't know who he is. And uh, the guy says, Hi, what's your name? He goes, My name's Nathan. He goes, My name's Reggie. I'm from California. And he goes, Oh, I'm Nathan from Albuquerque. <laughs> and they just get to talking, and, uh, Well, Nathan, what do you like to do? And he tells him, Well, Reggie, what do you like to do? He had no clue. This is Reggie Jackson, Nathan, <laughs> one of the coaches here. Philip, have I been so long a time with you? And you haven't figured it out yet, who I am. They will, however. They will understand it. The disciples are growing in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it does take time. When you spend time with God, with an open heart, and your mind is on the lookout for who He is, you'll know Him. Just like the disciples didn't know if he was the Messiah at first, then a couple did. Then Peter in Matthew 16 said, you are the Christ. Then after the resurrection, Thomas gets a broader understanding and says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. That knowledge is growing. And let me just say this. Be patient with your unbelieving friends. It takes time for some. Expose them to the things of God. Share the life of Christ with them. But give them time to process it all, to go over the barriers if they have any. Eddie Rickenbacker, who flew special missions in World War II, um, the the crew and uh, himself, they were lost at sea. The plane went down. He writes about the experience. They were out at sea 21 days. Rickenbacker said, In the beginning, many of the men were atheists or agnostics. But at the end of the terrible ordeal, each in his own way discovered God. Each man found God in the vast, empty loneliness of the ocean. Each man found salvation and strength in prayer. And a community of feeling developed, which created a liveliness of human fellowship and worship 
and a sense of gentle peace. But it took time. It took 21 days in a trial. So, if you're an unbeliever tonight, would you give God time? Would you give Him some of your precious time? Do a little research instead of just saying, I don't believe in God. I challenge you to find out who He is. Because the Bible says, you will find Him if you seek for Him with all of your heart. Second, if you are a believer, I'd like you to evaluate your time spent with God. Now, you could say, I'm busy, so am I. We're all busy. (laughs) But if you're too busy for God, you're too busy. And I want you to evaluate not the time you spend for God as much as the time you spend with God. There's a difference. The church at Ephesus spent a lot of time working for God and Jesus had to say, time out. You've left your first love. You can be so busy about the king's business that you forget the king. How is your time spent in the presence of God? You can't know someone unless you spend time with them. Third step is by listening to what he has to say. Verse 10 Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Jesus appeals to the words they heard him speak. And face it, nobody but nobody ever preached like Jesus. After the Sermon on the Mount, the crowd was amazed because it says in Matthew 7, he spoke as one having authority, not like their other leaders. In John's Gospel, chapter 7, guards were sent to arrest Jesus. They came back, no Jesus. Sanhedrin said, why didn't you bring him? You know what they said? Nobody ever spoke like this guy. They were amazed at his words. If you want to know God, read his book. Read the words of God. His personality is conveyed. Now granted, some of you may be thinking, well, if I just read the Bible, I'm going to know about God. How can I know about God and yet come to know God personally? I'm going to read about stories and facts and poetry and rebukes and history. Well, it's just like knowing a person. Facts and stories are essential in relating to any person. It gives you a profile of what that person likes, dislikes, loves, hates, what that person's aim is all about and purpose. You'll get it. God will speak to you. Martin Luther said about the Bible, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. The Word of God, God will speak through it. By the way, the telltale sign of a child of God is that child of God has a hunger and a thirst to know more about God. I want to know more. I want to find out who He is. I have this unquenchable thirst to know Him. And I'm I'm going to read this book. As Peter said, As newborn babies crave, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. George Gallup, you've heard his name. He's the pollster, George Gallup Jr., who polls people on different things for different years. For a long time, he has said that America is a nation of biblical illiterates. Here's why. According to Gallup, only four in ten of us know that Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. 
A majority of citizens cannot name the four Gospels. Only three in ten teenagers know why Easter is celebrated. Two-thirds of Americans believe there are few, if any, absolute principles to direct human behavior. But a child of God, one who wants to know God, you'll read his book, you'll listen to his words. Fourth and finally, you will observe his works. Verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. This shows me that God is not only perceived via information, but we can know God by transformation that occurs. In other words, we look at what God does, and when we see evidence of His work, we grow to know Him more. Ah, that's what He does. I see it. Nicodemus said to Jesus, No one can do these works that you do unless God is with him. The works that he did, the various miracles, the signs and wonders, all evidenced that he had an intimate relationship with the Father who was doing those works through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. All three working together on the earth. It proved it. By the way, I can still observe God's powerful works. We just did a baptism last Sunday evening. I listened to testimonies of people. When did you come to Christ? Tell me about your background. I love the one. It was a family who said, we were divorced. I was an alcoholic. We are now remarried. We are all saved. God has changed our marriage, changed our family, changed my life. That's the work of God. I can see God working in India tomorrow, November 4th. There will be 300 million of the untouchables of India making a decision, represented by a million of these Dalits, they are called, up in New Delhi. They are ready to forsake Hinduism because they're the lowest caste of the Hindus and they're considering Christianity. Now you might scoff and say, well, how do you consider or legislate something like that? Listen, that's a move in the right direction to say, I'm willing to forsake Hinduism and I'm willing to consider Christ 300 million? Talk about a potential for evangelism. You can look at the works of God and say, I know Him based on that. That's what He's doing. That's what He's up to. And every week, I see people come forward to receive Christ. I see the work of God changing lives and I know God still forgives people. So we perceive God. We know God. By all of these ways, believing in His person, being in His presence, listening to His Word, watching His works. So, of all of the kinds of knowledge that you could have, of all the things you could study in school, the knowledge of God is the ultimate knowledge. Add that as the pinnacle priority in your life. That's the knowledge I want more than anything else. Let me close with a parable. There was once a carpenter, a very skilled laborer. He was the kind of carpenter that didn't just make little wooden things. He built homes, and he was was exquisite in style. He was coming to a point in his life, he was older, he wanted to relax, and so he handed in his resignation, told his boss, the the employer, supervisor, I quit. I'm no longer going to build homes. I, I need to relax. I'll miss the paycheck, but you know what? I want an easier life. Well, the boss was sad to see him go because the guy was so good. But he understood and he said, tell you what, before you leave, would you do me one personal favor? 
there's one more house I need you to build. I need to get it done. There is a deadline. I want you to do it. Man said, all right, I'll do it. Wasn't too excited, but personal favor for the boss. He built a house. However, since he's in relax mode and doesn't want to do this anymore, he doesn't put much effort into it. Shoddy workmanship. Got bad materials. Didn't line it all up right. He just didn't care anymore. The house was finally done. His employer comes to him to inspect the house with a set of keys and hands the keys to the one who built it and said, I'm giving you this house. It's my gift to you. Not knowing how he had built it. Then it dawned on him, what a shame if I would have known I'm building this house for me. I would have done it differently. I think a lot of people live that way. It's only at the end of their lives, after building on such poor foundations, they think, you know, I wish I could do it all over again. I'd do it differently. You are the carpenter. You are building your life. And I hope that you are building it with the knowledge of God in mind. That's the way to build your life. Heavenly Father, there is no more ultimate form of knowledge, no loftier subject, no loftier person to study than you your person, your plan of redemption, your plan of evangelism. The future as it unfolds in the Word of God gives us confidence as we study it. As we believe in You, as we spend time with You, as we listen to Your words, as we watch You work, all of those help us know who You are. Lord, we're growing. We're on a path, but we're also building And I pray that we would build on the good foundation that is solid. I pray, Lord, that the materials that we choose would be based upon knowing You. For You said, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, it sounds so arrogant to the world to say, I know God. And maybe it's even presumptuous to say that. Unless we truly know you, help us to come into a more deeper understanding. And tonight, Lord, I would pray for those who have never surrendered. They've never truly believed. They believe, if I ever get in trouble, I can call Dr. God, Dr. Jesus. He'll bail me out. But they've never put themselves under the knife, so to speak, under your care. They've never surrendered their lives personally to Jesus Christ. And that needs to be done, Lord. There needs to be a choice made by us to receive You. And I pray for some that would occur tonight. That would occur tonight. 